and welcome to the Unheard Podcast. I'm Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where I ask my very special guests to educate and inform us about stories which they think are underreported but very significant and um, need a sort of light shone on them. And at the end of the show, we discuss our heroes and villains of the week. This week, we have, I think we have the entire left represented here. We have every flavour of left-wing person, from the left to the right and me, the centrist mum in the middle. And that's that. I feel like that is my role for today. So I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Embry. Um, Paul is a trade union official from the Fire Brigades Union and a regular columnist for Unheard. And Ash Sarka, who is a senior editor at Novara Media and author and pops up on our television and radio all the time. It is an absolute delight to have you here. Hello. Hello. Hey. So we're going to crack right on. Ash, I'm going to come to you for your underreported story. So uh, my underreported story is just a little reminder that Britain isn't actually the only country having troubles with the European Union. Um, this week, the European Commission took the first steps towards fining uh, the Italian national government for its budget, which the EU says breaches EU uh, spending limits, which are sort of aimed at reducing Italy's deficit. There's been a lot of brinksmanship since September. Basically, uh, Lager and the Five Star Movement want to increase spending a bit in order to provide a universal income for unemployed people and um, for Salvini to fulfil an election promise to cut taxes for low and middle income households and Italy, uh, sorry, and the European Commission is absolutely having none of it. So these fines could potentially be as high as 0.5% of Italy's GDP. So talking a lot of money. The interesting thing is, is that the spending increases don't actually breach the EU's recommendations for making sure they're not more than 3% of GDP. So there's a bit of a tussle here about the interpretation of, uh, you know, EU guidelines for spending. And really, I think this is a, a struggle that goes right to the heart of the crisis facing the European Union economic project. And this is something, and I'm surprised we actually haven't heard more about this from um, more of the Brexiteers, because as you say, you know, we have to be honest, the EU is not a perfect institution and we are not the only country that has problems with, with the EU. Why do you think this hasn't been used more by the, the sort of Brexiteers? I think one reason is a really silly one and it's just a general Anglo-centrism. So the news that we have tends to be dominated by the United States or our own sort of domestic agenda. We don't really look And even at then news. it's a bubble in sort of around London, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge bubble. So I think that's one element of it. And then the other is it's really difficult for right-wing Brexiters to make a left-wing argument for increased spending. For them, uh, the Brexit project means sort of crashing out of some of the constraints around, you know, carving up public public assets, um, of, you know, opening up public services to, in particular, American market forces. So it's then hard to make this argument of we should leave the EU so you could have something like universal basic income. And for you as somebody who is you're very, very um, proudly, you know, on on the left of the of the sort of left spectrum. Yeah, the spicy of, left. The spicy left. <laughs> um, but, you know... Yeah. Do you, do you find yourself in an odd situation? I mean, you must appall 
Salvini and you must abhor some of the things that he is sort of pushing in terms of his very, very tough anti-rhetoric um, immigrant and his sort of rise of that very sort of dangerous sort of populism. But do you find yourself having some sympathies with the Italian government? Do you find yourself in an odd situation? I mean, it shows, it demonstrates the danger of neglecting, I think, progressive criticism of the EU because if we don't do it, we're leaving it to these really quite hardline racist nationalists to, you know, take up that banner. What's interesting is that the EU has had a bigger problem with uh, Salvini's proposed budget than they have his, you know, his line on refugees, turning away boats, and so on and so forth. So I think what we see in terms of where the EU is willing to, you know, give a little bit of wriggle room is really this nationalist project is when there's a kind of project of economic sovereignty they've got more of an issue now paul do you find yourself um in agreement with this i mean you're a you're a keen brexiteer do you do you have sort of sympathy with the italian government on this well i mean on this particular point yes i do and i think what this does is illustrates what some of us on the left who have been critics of the eu have been saying for a number of years that actually it's a fundamentally anti-democratic project. It's an explicitly anti-socialist project. Uh, And what we've seen here, and I'm also surprised that it hasn't garnered more um, media attention than it has, is effectively uh, a bunch of unelected EU commissioners who have got no direct mandate whatsoever from the people of Europe, instructing Uh, a national government, an elected government, to alter something as fundamental as its budget plans. Its budget plans, which included, you know, scrapping extensions to the retirement age, as Ash said, a a minimum income guarantee for the unemployed, etc. And when you get into that sort of territory of unelected technocrats telling national elected governments what they can and can't spend in their own country and who they can and can't spend their money on... Um, I just think you, you you're on a very very slippery slope to to you know the potential crushing of, of democracy itself, and this is what this is what we've been arguing. And you know I, I still think even today that so many people on the left who see the EU as some kind of progressive, benevolent, left wing project uh, have got it wrong. Um, you know the the unelected European Commission has the power of legis- legislative initiative. Our laws come originally from unelected commissioners. The European Parliament, um, so far as it's a parliament at all, uh, at all, does not have the right of initiative. It has the right to tweak, to amend, etc. But I don't know of a parliament worth the name across the world which doesn't have the right to initiate its own legislation. So, so yeah, I think this is absolutely a central story and illustrates exactly what the EU has been about for the last 40 or so years. I mean, just... I mean, because I think you two are quite on the same side on this. I mean, there will be many listening to to this podcast um, who will sort of push back against that, you know, description of of the EU, Paul, as you would imagine. And, you know, there's a whole body of, you know, people that think that that kind of argument that we're not, we have no sovereignty and we're not allowed to do anything is is for the birds. And I don't necessarily want to go down a sort of sovereignty um, cul-de-sac. But do you think that, I mean... Lots of economists are looking at the Italian economy and if the Italian economy economy crashes and gets into a sort of a Greece situation, then that is a big, that poses a big, big challenge for the the EU. Um, And will, do you think, 
Italy will be the next country that may want to break away from the EU. The interesting thing is that Salvini has consistently said that he doesn't want to leave the EU. So in a very strange way, he's got a lot in common with a figure like Yanis Varoufakis, who is incredibly critical of the EU, but says that you have to stay and change it from within. And is that your view, Ash? Would, Would you be preferring that we stay in the EU to change? I mean, that was actually... Jeremy Corbyn's, I thought, very good line during the EU referendum campaign. We just didn't quite hear it enough. I am that awful thing, which is I am EU ambivalent. Um, I think that if it's a choice between no deal and no Brexit, I would probably opt for a no Brexit, remain in reform. But I do think that comes with uh, some severe costs. One is a breakdown of trust in UK democratic institutions and processes. Um, And I think that the problem with the Remain and Reform argument is outside of organisations like Another Europe is Possible and a few key figureheads like Yanis Varoufakis, the nature of that reform and the choreography of it hasn't been messaged very well. No one really knows what it is. Well, it hasn't really been done, has it? I mean, no, I mean, this I mean, this is a, a good I think state reform is a good argument. But up until very recently, nobody has actually been making it. Well, I, I'm not so sure, actually, because if you think just prior to the referendum, when David Cameron went to, to Brussels um, and, uh, you know, with the with the purpose of, of trying to, to get serious reforms, which was, you know, the, the Tory manifesto pledge, I'm going to go to Brussels, I'm going to get serious reforms from Brussels and we're going to hold a referendum. Actually, what he got back from Brussels was chicken feed. I mean, he got he got four points, which I suspect most people out there probably can't even remember what that what that reform was all about. And the truth is, if you look at the, the history of the EU over the last 40 years, people have been talking consistently about reforming it for the better. And no one has ever seriously succeeded because the way that it's run is locked into its treaties and it is simply impossible to, to reform in any substantial way. I mean, on the David Cameron point, you're right, he did try and, and, and do that, but it was very, very last ditch effort. I mean, it was he basically said, we're having this referendum. He was feeling the heat from from UKIP and the right of his party. And then he was like, God, I better go to sort of Europe. It was, I mean, I think I'm making the point and I, I absolutely blame previous Labour kind of governments for this as well. I don't think anybody has really put their shoulder to the wheel, particularly on the left of politics in terms of trying to make that socialist argument about how um, the EU needed reorientating and you know needed to because lots of other countries we're not the only country that has got this rising sort of unease about things and the EU is an obvious institution to blame but I do think sort of successive ministers um, didn't really really try and build allegiances or try and really sort of challenge the EU I would be very pessimistic about whether it was a a left-wing prime minister or a right-wing prime minister from the UK, um, you know, getting any sort of serious reform. I mean, the the treaties are the treaties, effectively um, liberalisation and neoliberalism and privatisation and the dominance of market forces are locked into the treaties. And the idea that I think a single prime minister is going to have is going to be able to convince all those other 27 member states because that's what it would take they would all need to agree to change in such a fundamental way what the EU project is about um, I think is fanciful I think from a left point of view I think we're better off out of it and I don't um, 
And I've never, I mean, I don't particularly like the term Lexit, for example, because that gives the impression there can be a left-wing exit. I don't think there is going to be a left-wing exit. I'm not naive about it. Um, so, I, you know, I, I try and steer away from that. But, but the, so you just want, you want out. So in, if you were if It's you're a necessary but insufficient step for me. So if you were in Parliament, would you be saying, let's just go for no deal rather than this deal yeah, that's on the I, table? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, think the, I think the dangers for democracy in this country and people's trust in the democratic process if we are still bound to, to the EU after the, the 30th of March 2019, um, I think those dangers are huge. We have to remember the people did not vote to leave the EU only with a deal. They voted to leave the EU full stop in overwhelming numbers, and that has got well, to happen. The, I mean, there's lots of different interpretations about why people... But, well, it was on the ballot form. Well, there's lots of... I've had so many different kind of versions from good friends that are leavers. I've had there's many flavours of leavers as well. Ash, just two things for you. Is there a left-wing way of doing Brexit? Is there a Lexit? Because Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell argue that they could get a better deal, they could get a sort of socialist, jobs-first Brexit. Is that possible? I think that it's not possible to secure an exit from the EU which would maintain the pace of economic growth that we've had for, you know, the past 10 years or whatever. Um, even with the softest of Brexits, you're looking at growth being revised down to under There's going to be some hit, isn't there? You know, there? for yeah. the foreseeable future. However, there could be different red lines if it was negotiated by, you know, John and Jezza. <laughs> One thing being the rules on state aid. So obviously, Theresa May doesn't want out of EU restrictions on state aid because she knows that if that's something that is part of her deal, she's, you know, completely hamstrung a future Labour government from being able to implement those kind of non-reformist reforms, which really change the balance of social forces in this country. So, And, and just for our listeners, it's it's worth knowing that the deal that, that Theresa May has secured, one of the big problems for the Labour Party were the rules on, on state aid. They hadn't, they were actually going to be more restrictive um, than, than it looks like what we've sort of got at the moment. So state aid is a critical issue for the Labour Party going forward, isn't it? And the other issue being workers and environmental protections. So the deal that Theresa May has negotiated so far, it says that we'll leave with EU standards in place. But if the EU bring in changes which grant further protections for workers and the environment in EU countries, Britain could very well fall behind. Whereas what John and Jeremy have been saying is that we will use the EU as our floor not our ceiling mm. in that regard. So I do think that in those very significant areas, Labour could negotiate a different deal. One thing that I would say which is worth emphasising is that as we see the growth of hardline right-wing nationalist populism across Europe, Britain, weirdly, is an outlier because our nationalists want to leave the EU. You look at Hungary, you look at Poland, you look at Italy. Mm. They want to stay and to sort of heighten the white supremacist elements of, say, freedom of movement, freedom of movement for us but not for you, that kind of thing. And they're really testing the limits of, you know, some of the, uh, I guess, the the principles around a tolerant political culture that the EU is meant to stand for. They're saying, what do you care about more? Do you care about um, these values, which you say you've enshrined, or do you care more about um, 
I guess, imposing a neoliberal orthodoxy across the 27 member states? Well, I mean, there is a very, very big question. I mean, I had chaired a very, very interesting debate about how black and Asian people feel about the, the EU and Brexit. And the interesting thing was actually most people in the room um, said, look, I don't feel European. I feel more British and I feel European. And actually, as a person of colour, I don't feel very safe when I go to Europe now. There is that kind of, there is a feeling that there is this rise in populism. I think The Guardian had a very interesting story this week saying one in four Europeans vote for populist But the difference is, is that The Guardian think that anyone who's not Emmanuel Macron is a populist. So they've just <laughs> said, like, you know, Bernie Sanders, there, Donald Trump, these are the same. But there, but there, that, I thought that was that was kind of, that was interesting. And of course, one of the, the things that a lot of black and Asian people feel is that the rules are very, very unfair on the whole um, freedom of movement. And that, you know, Europe is not, as you say, a lot of people don't view Europe as this entirely positive, you know, benevolent, culturally inclusive political project. And it's a bit rich as well, isn't it, for the UK, which has never had any serious history of of fascism. Um, I mean, we know we had the the sort of British Union of fascists in the in the twenties and thirties, and the the NF later. But in terms of any real popular movement for fascism, we've never really seen that in this country. Whereas across the continent, of course, you know, there's a number of countries that have got a a very, you know, strong fascist tradition. Um, And we're told that actually we need to hitch our wagon to these countries to save ourselves from potential fascists at the door. Well, Um, Ash, do you want to come back on that? I mean, one of the reasons why Britain hasn't had that strong tradition of fascism is because we were able to very effectively outsource our expansion and our violence and exploitation to the colonies. Part of the fascist project was trying to recreate imperial relations on the continent of Europe itself. So I don't really buy the that argument. The empire has been around for a long time, though, and we still haven't had any serious fascist tradition, that we even post-empire. Well, no, one of the things that we could talk about is the fact that Britain hasn't really come to terms with its colonial past um, or indeed its colonial origins. We can go back and we can look at the Act of Union of uh, 1707 and look at the project of Britain itself as an imperial formation, a union of two countries with colonial ambitions. And in that space of not really dealing with it politically, psychologically or indeed economically, we had EU membership. Right. And that was a kind of a little bit of a buffer. Right. We didn't have to deal with the loss of uh, geopolitical or geoeconomic dominance. Now, with Brexit, we do have to deal with that. We do have to deal with a diminished status on the world stage. I think it will be deeply traumatic. I'm kind of looking forward to it. I think it's the other way around, actually. I I think by throwing our lot in with the European project back in the 70s and actually cutting our historical links with other Commonwealth countries and the trading links that we had with Commonwealth countries, um, we became, with our European partners, a much more insular uh, player on the global stage than, well, than, than, we, than we might have been otherwise. We've I think, neglected the, you know, we've neglected our, our historical and cultural links with the, the Commonwealth as a result of our partly, as a result of our EU membership. Well, I think we should, I mean, I think there's a lot in, in what both you, you kind of see. I think we. I think the the, fas- the 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 fascism thing is interesting. I think one of the reasons we haven't had a huge explosion of fascism, thank God, is because I think British society, its media, its political class. I think we are eternally vigilant about it. I think we do. We kind of care about it more. I think than other sort of political classes in other um, countries. But don't forget, I think we can't be complacent. I mean, Joe Cox was was murdered two 
sort of years ago, we are seeing the rise of um, far right extremism, you know, various parts of the police and the sort of people that monitor this um, tell us that. But yeah, no, it's I mean, I'm just conscious of time, so we'll have to move on. But it, it is a fascinating it's a fascinating argument just looking at where Britain's not just the economics, but the the morality and the cultural sort of compass pivots um, through the, the kind of EU debate. But thank you for that story, Ash. Um, really, really important. And I, I suspect we will be hearing more about this, but thanks for bringing it to our attention. Paul, your underreported story, very, very different sort of zone now. Yeah, this was something that I, I picked up in, um, in one of the broadsheets um, and it hasn't been particularly widely reported, although I do think it's, it's an important story, that the London Ambulance Service is currently consulting uh, on a proposal to tell its 999 call handlers to avoid calling people sir or madam when they're speaking to them uh, to avoid causing offence. Um, and I just think it goes to the, to, to the heart of, um, of the, the whole issue, A, of causing offence uh, and what does cause offence and doesn't cause offence and whether actually we should be particularly bothered about causing offence uh, if what we're doing is what we consider to be acceptable uh, and not gratuitous and not intended to hurt or upset people. Um, and B, you know, the whole debate about, you know, the differences between men and women and whether or not in these days there are any differences between men and women and whether or not a society which, you know, for hundreds of years, if not more, culturally, historically, uh, has recognised the differences between men and women, um, whether that society should be forced to completely abandon its traditions to accommodate such minority calls. I suspect probably calls from not necessarily transgender people themselves, I suspect from people who think they're speaking on behalf of transgender people. And it's just another story, one of these stories, I think that needs to be put into the box of you couldn't make it up. So who's who, by the way, has brought this forward? Who is instructing the the ambulance callers? Who's brought this? Or well, who's, where does it come from? According to the according to the piece that I read, uh, Jules Lockett, who is uh, a senior manager within the um, within the London Ambulance Service and a member of the LGBT community himself, uh, has said that um, such terms as sir and madam and Mister and Mrs are outdated, and call handlers shouldn't automatically assume gender when they speak to people, uh, and should avoid using those those uh, pronouns mm. at all. And listen, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer that, you know, people should be free to, to live their lives free from persecution or bullying or harassment. And, you know, if people want to be called a particular name or addressed in a particular way, then I don't particularly have a problem with that. Um, but the idea that, you know, the, the default position of saying to a woman, madam or miss, and saying to a man, sir or mister is somehow wrong and somehow of itself offensive, I just think is is ludicrous and, and shows the, the growing disconnect between, you know, a certain liberal hierarchy within our country uh, and the vast majority of people who look at stories like this and think, what on earth are you banging on about? Ash, does it bother you? Does this, would, if somebody called you sir or madam, would that, would that, would that bother you if someone called you madam or miss? I feel a bit young to be a madam. That would be the only thing that would wind <laughs> me up. I, I love it if someone calls me miss. I'm like, yes, I, mean, I, I should, am I'd just be that. thinking, like, oh, God, I need to moisturise more. <laughs> I mean, look, these stories are ten a penny. Big services like the ambulance service, like 
you know, child protection, like schools, they consult on a whole raft of measures all the time, most of which aren't implemented. So I wouldn't be surprised if this story in The Telegraph really is the last that we hear of it. I don't think it's a bad thing to explore some of these ideas, to consult on some of these ideas. And perhaps you're right. Perhaps the result of this consultation is that a lot of trans people will go, you know what, we really do not give a monkeys about this. What we care about is being able to exist in public spaces, you know, with our dignity and our safety Also, intact. I presume if you're phoning up 999 for an ambulance, you're pretty ill. You don't really care about whether someone's calling you Sarah Madden. You just basically, come and help me, my leg's falling off or Precisely. something like that. It, it just strikes me, and I work in the I work in the public services. I work in an emergency service, um, and you know it strikes me that that people who run public services nowadays are just constantly looking for what is the next thing we can do. You know, what is the the next thing? Let's ratchet up to the next point to show our wonderful progressive, you know, credentials but in the area. Is, and, is... and 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 because there is that constant momentum behind this sort of stuff, we never get to a point where people say, actually, we're doing pretty well at the moment, but, and, and, and we don't. Is... Need any of these madcap ideas I, I, because that's taking things I, I, too far. I have to say, like the way in which this story has been brought up, where we could look at it proportionately, which is there's consultation, it might not yeah. happen, and this probably isn't the first priority for most trans people, and we could leave it at that. Or the priority well, for the ambulance service, which is st- starved of cash and needs sort of money. How, however, the way it's being brought up is this is indicative of a wider social malaise. There is a liberal agenda to, you know, put minority concerns ahead of the concerns of the majority. It's frankly this, you know, it's a wonderful piece of political storytelling, which you know, creates, I think, deep divisions and antagonisms within society. Well, for that would, the most that part, would be true for, if it no, was wait, an isolated for, for story, part, but it the, isn't, is it? I mean, the, part, in the, con- wait, uh, in the wait, context... Paul, Paul, I'm not done yet, love. Right. All right, sweet. For the most <laughs> no, part... No, no. Children, men and women, human, humans, that, humans in the room, <laughs> non-binary humans. <laughs> entities, entities in the room. For the most part, the trans rights movement in this country has been concerned with legal rights and rights to safety, similar for most minority groups in this country. Obviously, around it, there are some demands which which some people would think of as unreasonable. But I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily that we talk about it. I think that when stories like this are sort of used as an indicator that we've, you know, gone wrong in society somewhere, it's because people would like to put the genie back in the bottle. They would like to pretend that our notion of who the public is and what it means to serve the public is based around this idea that, you know, the archetypical human is a straight, middle-class, white man. That's not the case. Well, I can see why you might want to dismiss this story as an isolated one, but actually it's in the context of a movement towards effectively abolishing any distinction between between the sexes in this country and we've Is got it? a huge well we've got a huge debate at the moment in this country about changes to the gender recognition act um which in the future if they're adopted would see the ability of people to self-declare their gender without any checks and balances at all and potentially uh, men for example who declare as women having access to women only spaces now i know a lot of good decent women feminists who have been on the right side of equality battles throughout their entire lives who have said well hold on a second this is a step too far we have fought 
over decades for women's rights and we've struggled for security and privacy in women's workplaces and public spaces and we're about to unpick that simply because what you say you know this this sort of liberal hierarchy which does exist whether you like it or not not has has determined has determined that actually men can be women just because they decide they can reduces womanhood to a feeling and that's not acceptable as a woman. I'm really glad you're telling us what womanhood <laughs> no, is. But, well, I, I know you don't think I should have an opinion on it, but, but I've got I, one. But I think one of the things that's interesting about this story, and as, as one of these awful liberal hierarchy people um, who drafted the Equality Act in 2010, these stories pop up and people are always like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. This is unbelievable. This is ridiculous. I remember these stories from back in the day. So when we were drafting the 2010 Equality Act from about 2007, the Daily Mail pretty much ran a front page story pretty much every week for about two years saying, first of all, the Equality Act was banning Christmas. We were not allowed to have Christmas. So Winterville, there was absolute hysteria about Winterville. Then because we were introducing um, positive action measures, which actually services like the fire brigade and actually the police found very useful. Then it was the story that no white man was ever going to be able to get a job ever again in this country because this crazy sort of liberal hierarchy was going completely nuts. So I think there is often a sort of, I think there's a kind of, of course I'm sort of centrist aren't here, but I think there's a kind of middle point. I think sometimes there are, I think the, you made a point earlier in your analysis, where I, which I think is absolutely correct. I think a lot of trans people will not give a fig about this one way or the other. I think there are some people who, who quite like stirring the pot in some ways to sort of inflame this stuff. And But I think on the other side of it, as Ash said, lots of stuff is explored as society evolves. Public services serve the public as the public changes in its mood and you know evolves. It's right the public services kind of keep but questioning. Does the public change in the way that you're suggesting? I think what happens actually is is a particular liberal establishment might change in its view and then just substitutes its own view for the rest of the public and says, oh, you know, because the public view has now changed, we've got to modernise with I it. When it's actually there's millions of I people. Think Whereas millions of people out there look at it and think, hold on a second, you're not speaking for me here. And, you know, what we're seeing, and we touched on it in the first debate, is a growing divide between, you know, millions of ordinary working class people in this country who still often do hold true to those sort of old fashioned faith, family, flag, small c, social conservative values. Um and a liberal establishment which simply doesn't understand those people well, look, anymore I, and, and takes them to places where they don't want to go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this section up because I feel that the conversation is ripe for our next topic. But but thanks for, for, for highlighting that um, story which gets into... I think the bigger culture war that's that's going on um, in society, and we will we will see what happens with this sir and madam thing. But the next thing I want to go to is um, villain of the week, and I'm going to start with villain of the week because I think it kind of moves the conversation on from where we've had. And I think the villain of the week for me is I want to pose the question to you: Are Tories the villains? So John McDonald did an interview where he said, "I wouldn't ever be able to really be friends with the Tory or forgive the Tories for for what they do." and there's been a huge amount of sort of debate overnight about this in terms of whether you can have friends who are conservatives. Are they the enemy? As Labour people, should you have a purity where you kind of can't sort of do any business with conservatives? And I'd love to get kind of get your take. Ash, is is John right? Should we as we're all we would all be on we're all on the Labour side of things? 
Is it wrong for us to fraternise with the enemy, to try and do business with it? Are, they, are the Tories the enemy? Are Tory voters the enemy? I mean, you know, absolutely. I don't even have friends who are Arsenal supporters. Um, I think to clarify John McDonnell's comments, he said that he would work with Conservative MPs on bipartisan issues, pass legislation, so on and so forth. But you wouldn't find him in the Commons bar pallying around with Tory MPs. So he's not really talking about the average Conservative voter. I think that it's interesting the way that this is blown up on social media. So you've got someone like, um, you know, Professor Brian Cox saying, well, it's you must believe in a one party state if you're not friends with people of, you know, the opposite uh, political ideology, which I think is quite the logical leap. I think all of us have friendship groups which are based around a set of shared values. Sometimes those values are political values, sometimes they are more cultural values, sometimes it's a shared neighbourhood, but often it's the shared sense of purpose and a worldview. And within that group, you've got a tremendous amount of disagreement. Like, you know, most of my friends are leftists and we're having arguments all the time. Um, I think it's fine to say that, look, as a Labour MP who's you know, gone into constituency surgeries and had people come, you know, come up to me and say, I've attempted suicide. I'm, you know, I'm on the breadline here to say that, you know what, I can't be mates with the people who brought in the policies that made your living conditions so miserable. I can't, you know, just pop around so, for Sunday dinner and pretend it's all normal. Paul, what's your take? Because you're, you know, you, you're very much part of um, Blue Labour. I mean, often your values, there's, there's probably a lot of kind of conservative you know you share quite a lot of kind of cultural conservative mm. views what would you what do you feel about this small c certainly sorry not small large, c small not c. large c um I, I, first of all i like john mcdonald i think he's done a really really good job as uh, as shadow chancellor i'm slightly biased because he's, he's a great friend of the trade unions he's worked closely with my union the fbu over the years um so you know i declare an interest there but i, I do think he's a he's a good politician i think he's been saying some really good stuff um you know coming out of his department over over recent times but i was disappointed to, to i wasn't particularly surprised to hear him say it um john being john but i was i was slightly disappointed I don't accept this idea that, you know, you, you've got political enemies, you can never be friends with them. I mean, first of all, enemies is a term I don't really like. Political opponents, maybe, but not necessarily it's political enemies. It's quite charged enemies. language, isn't it? It's, it's charged great. language. I think political opponents is fine. And we've all got political opponents. And if we didn't have, we wouldn't have any politics ourselves, frankly. Um, but and I completely understand where he's coming from in terms of the damage that's been caused as a result of austerity. I see it in, in my job in the fire service. We see it throughout public services. We see it in some of our poorer communities in terms of the, the impacts of austerity on people's lives and, and on our services. Um, but I don't really like this idea of because you disagree with, with the economic policy or whatever of, of the Conservative Party, you can never be friends with them. Um, you know, you can never have um, good working relationships with them. It's almost a bit like sort of dehumanising them in, in some respects. I think you can bitterly oppose the policies of an individual or of a party without necessarily uh, opposing them as human beings. And, you know, I've, I've, got, um, I've got conservative friends. I'll argue with them politically until the cows come home. But um, I don't regard them as enemies. As the enemy. And do you think it will... Heart, because this is such an interesting moment in politics. We were just saying beforehand, we are genuinely living through political history at the moment. And I think there has never been a better opportunity for the Labour Party to seize power at the next general election, possibly with a majority, the way things are going. But to get a majority, 
you've got to persuade some Conservatives to come over and vote for us. Does this type of language put people off, do you think? I think it potentially does. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, any Labour Party has got to aim to build... To win an election, you've got to aim to build that coalition between, as a Labour Party, your traditional core vote in the working-class heartlands of this country and a layer of middle-class people, um, you know, whether it's the, the self-employed or the people on higher wages, the people who own their own homes, etc., the people who live in Tory constituencies, uh, who can see that Labour's ideas will benefit the rest of the country. That's, that's the trick to winning an election for Labour. I'm not particularly confident, I say this as a Labour Party member, I'm not particularly confident that Labour is on its way to power. I think that Labour, with the disarray the Tories are currently in, should be streets ahead, and they're not streets ahead. Uh, I think if you look at the last election, we're actually losing the traditional working class vote. That's the real problem we've got. You know, we, we saw a swing to the Tories in many of those heartland constituencies. We lost constituencies like Walsall and North East Derbyshire, a mining constituency, Mansfield. And I think that's partly because, touching on the earlier discussion, partly because Labour is increasingly seen out there as this sort of metropolitan-focused, middle-class, liberal, bourgeois party that actually its traditional base are looking at it and thinking, but you don't still, represent I mean, me anymore. Uh, Ash, you're out a lot doing campaigning for the League. You're not a Labour Party member, though, are you? No, you're I'm not. Like I don't think they need that problem. <laughs> um, so... Actually, in terms of where Labour picked up seats, there's an interesting story. So if you look at the working class as racially and ethnically homogenous, then you go, oh, my God, Labour are losing the working class vote. They actually picked up a lot of working class vote where you've got a particularly diverse working class. So the average BAME population of seats picked up by Labour from the Conservatives was 14% black and Asian minority ethnic. For the seats picked up by the Conservatives off of Labour, it was an average 4% black and Asian minority ethnic. So I think that we've got to start looking at our parameters a bit differently. There was also a pickup in terms of C to DE, that economic bracket of working class votes for Labour. Those things are also true. I think that what is going to decide the next election isn't a traditional left versus right polarisation. I think it's a, it's a contest between stasis and change. I think it's a contest between uh, thinking of politics as purely a cultural terrain to win or an economic but terrain just, to win. So on that, and, you know, I mean, I think I think politics is, is so interesting. I have said for a long time that I do, I think that Jeremy Corbyn will be prime minister. He might not get there with a majority. He might get there as being the largest party and doing a deal with the SNP, which is looking increasingly likely because I think there could be an alliance there, there could be a second referendum offered um, in Scotland. But I think the biggest thing that is going to hurt Labour is going back to this original point that we brought in. I think there's a lot of people who are definitely looking at Labour with some fresh eyes. I think there's a great sense of frustration about austerity, um, about what that's done to our communities. When I was doing my stand-up tour around the country, I was going to conservative areas and people were putting their hands up in the audience saying, I've always voted conservative, but I work in a school. I'm a paramedic. I'm going to give Labour a shot. But the one thing that I think puts people off they like John McDonnell. I think they do like the policies coming out. The thing that puts them off is this tribalism, is this kind of you're either with us or you're against us. And there's a sort of sense that there's a sort of purity um, coming out from the the sort of, you know, the, the people around the Labour Party and some of the outriders who I think are very much kind of in your sort of um, sort of, you know, group of, 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 of friends and things like that, which is, 
you know, how do we reach out to people if we're sending a message saying, if, you, if, you, if you've ever been a Tory, you're a bad person, we can't do any business. That's the sort of signal, that's what worries me as somebody who, you know, I think Labour could win power and could win with the majority if they reached out a little bit more and kind of backed off the sort of aggressive, you know, where Labour and you're either with the Corbyn project or you're the enemy. I mean, on that... I think that there's a difference between what you're saying and what John McDonnell actually said. So John McDonnell was talking particularly about Westminster palliness, not talking about outreach to voters. And Do I you think, not think that seeps out, Ash? No, I don't think it does. I think that what people like is that there's a bit of a breakup with this Westminster palliness. And to be a really uh, like pretentious dirkhead for a second, I go think on. it's useful to go back and read some Gramsci. <laughs> right? Because I think it's important to look at moments of um, huge political change, paradigm shift, you know, a breakup of, you know, one power block and the creation of another. Thanks for listening to the Unheard podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika, and I look forward to your company next time. What? Gramsci observed happens before that is a period of what he calls transformism, which is where uh, seemingly opposing political parties start to look exactly the same in terms of politics, worldview, so on and so forth. And I think if John McDonnell was saying, yeah, we all go to the Commons bar afterwards, that's just going to reinforce this sense amongst the public that everyone is all the same. Okay. A bit of polarisation does the soul good. Well, certainly one of the big criticisms has been that we're all the same, but that's definitely not the case um, right now. Now, Paul, I'm going to come to you very quickly for your very worthy, worthy Hero of the Week. Um, hero of the Week for me, and he's a bit of a hero of mine anyway, but particularly this week, is is the late Clement Attlee, uh, former um, iconic Labour figure and Prime Minister, um, because there was a story revealed this week which clearly nobody knew about, which was in the months leading up to the Second World War, um, Clement Attlee, who obviously, alongside Churchill, went to went on to play a huge role in that Second World War as part of the coalition government, um, took in uh, a young boy of about 10 years of age, a Jewish refugee fleeing the, the Nazis from Germany. Um, and it was a really heartwarming story, actually, that you know, two two brothers lived with their mother. Their father had run off and left them in uh, in Germany, um, and you know, at a time just leading up to the start of the Second World War, where the, the the Jews were being terribly persecuted. And she wrote to a German bishop who was living in London, and the German bishop spoke to the rector of Stanmore, which is where Clement Attlee was living at the time, and he said, "Send one of them to me." Wow. And um, and the great thing about Attlee, and I think it's proved in this story, is that he was actually so modest and so understated. If if a politician did that today i'm sure they'd be making political capital out of it this was a war hero who fought on the beaches at gallipoli and got shot but he never really talked about that stuff but he was also a, a fantastic prime minister well um fantastic story to wrap up on um and yeah thank you so much to ash and paul a really really interesting um discussion and also just to show you the the range of views that exist um on the left it's been it's been really really interesting talking to you both thank you very much thank you for listening to the the Unheard podcast. I'm Aisha Hazarika. I look forward to you joining us again. Mm-hmm.